80 years ago this month, Stalin ignominiously dissolved the Communist International. This anniversary provides us with a perfect opportunity to explore a wide range of theoretical and historical questions and to dig even deeper than we have in past episodes into the differences between genuine Bolshevism and Leninism and its bureaucratic opposite, which we call Zinovievism or Stalinism. That America will never be a socialist country. 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 Attitudes are changing towards socialism. We believe the only solution is the establishment of a workers' government on a socialist program. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Socialist Revolution podcast. My name is John Peterson. I'm the executive editor of Socialist Revolution magazine. You can visit our website at www.socialistrevolution.org. Every episode, we feature contributions and discussions on current events, history, and theory from a Marxist class struggle perspective featuring revolutionary socialists from around the country and around the world. In the Manifesto of the Communist Party, published in February 1848, Marx and Engels famously wrote that a specter was haunting Europe, the specter of communism. 71 years later, with the creation of the Communist International on March 2, 1919, real living communism haunted the entire world. Also known as the Third International, or the Comintern, its founding Congress saw the participation of just 52 delegates from 34 parties around the world who had braved the imperialist encirclement to get to Moscow. It opened with a tribute to Karl Liebknecht and Rosa Luxemburg, who had been murdered by the reactionary Freikorps in Berlin just a few weeks earlier. This momentous gathering was organized despite the chaos of revolution and counter-revolution that raged all around them, or rather, precisely because of it. The Bolsheviks understood that in the final analysis, only the world revolution could save the Russian revolution, and for that, a revolutionary international was required. At its second congress, held in Moscow in July and August 1920, the Comintern resolved to, quote, struggle by all available means, including armed force, for the overthrow of the international bourgeoisie and the creation of an international Soviet republic as a transition stage to the complete abolition of the state, end quote. The Second Congress also adopted the famous 21 conditions proposed by Lenin, which outlined the prerequisites for affiliating to the Third International. These focused on two main points. The first was to differentiate the revolutionary communists from the many variants of reformist socialists, and the other was to establish democratic centralist structures at all levels of the international in order to confront the centralized power of the bourgeois state. As point one of the 21 conditions stated, all propaganda and agitation must bear a really communist character and correspond to the program and decisions of the Communist International. All the party's press organs must be run by reliable communists who have proven their devotion to the cause of the proletariat. The dictatorship of the proletariat must not be treated simply as a current formula learned by heart. Propaganda for it must be carried out in such a way that its necessity is comprehensible to every simple worker, every woman worker, every soldier and peasant from the facts of their daily lives, which must be observed systematically by our press and used day by day. 
the periodical and other press, and all the party's publishing institutions must be subordinated to the party leadership regardless of whether at any given moment the party as a whole is legal or illegal. The publishing houses must not be allowed to abuse their independence and pursue policies that do not entirely correspond to the policies of the party. And as point two made crystal clear, Every organization that wishes to affiliate to the Communist International must regularly and methodically remove reformists and centrists from every responsible post in the labor movement, including party organizations, editorial boards, trades unions, parliamentary factions, cooperatives, local government, and replace them with tested communists. Taken as a whole, the 21 points declared war on the whole bourgeois world and on all yellow social democratic parties. The difference between the Communist parties and the old official Social Democratic or Socialist parties that have betrayed the banner of the working class must be clear to every simple toiler. A line in the sand had been drawn, and just a few years after the collapse of the Socialist International and the nightmare of World War I, the future of world communism seemed right indeed. As Ted Grant explained after the Comintern was dissolved in 1943, the Third International was created by Lenin and Trotsky as an instrument of world revolution. It was born in the midst of the revolutionary cataclysms which followed the last world war and was inspired by the victory of the Russian Revolution. This was conceived by its founders as the first step towards world socialism, which would soon be followed by victories in the more advanced countries of the West. He added, to understand how it is that this organization which aroused the terror and hatred of the whole capitalist world has come to such an inglorious end at the bidding of capitalism, it is necessary to review briefly the stormy rise and even stormier decline of the international. The decree for its dissolution was merely an acknowledgement of what has long been known to all informed people, that the Comintern as a factor for making world socialism was dead and had departed forever from its original aims and purposes. Its demise was predicted and foreseen long in advance. What did Ted mean when he said that its demise had been predicted long in advance, echoing what Trotsky had written before his death? After all, within a year of its founding, the Comintern was the most powerful international proletarian organization ever created. The world capitalist class had been put on notice, and they quite literally trembled at the prospect of a worldwide communist revolution. So how is it that just a few years after it entered the scene of history, the communist international suffered a sudden, dramatic, and irreversible decline? What happened between the Fourth Congress, held in 1922, and the Comintern's final collapse on May 15, 1943. How was all that potential squandered and turned into its opposite? To set the stage, we should remember that this was a long and difficult period for the world working class, which saw the tragic defeats of the German, Chinese, and Spanish revolutions, the rise of Hitler, the outbreak of World War II, Trotsky's assassination, and much more. After holding annual congresses from 1919 to 1922, Despite the civil war and being pressed on all sides by imperialism, just three more congresses were held over the next 20 years that followed, the 5th Congress in 1924, the 6th in 1928, and the 7th in 1935. This alone speaks volumes about the changes that had taken place. As with all major social processes, both the rise and fall of the Third International can only be understood as part of a process, a clash of living forces, and the end result was not at all predetermined. The nationalist bureaucratic degeneration that took place in the USSR after the death of Lenin was mirrored in the Comintern, and these processes fed back on each other. 
As we'll see, it was not merely a question of bad ideas, decisions, or leaders, though there were certainly plenty of those, but of colossal antagonistic class forces which collided on a national and international scale. Despite Trotsky and the left opposition's heroic efforts to organize a political fight back against the degeneration of the Russian Revolution and its international expression, even his enormous authority could not hold back the tide of history. We'll need a fair amount of background, context, and history to understand the decline and collapse of the Comintern, a process that began under Grigory Zinoviev and was completed by Stalin. Zinoviev's role in laying the foundations for the Stalinist strangulation of the Comintern is one of the essential pieces of this puzzle. An understanding of the essence of Zinovievism is crucial if we are to maximize the lessons we can learn from this experience. First and foremost, we should understand that Zinovievism is not an empty insult, but rather a shorthand way of describing a particular method, a very bad method. Zinovievism is when you look for artificial shortcuts to resolve political or organizational problems, taking administrative measures instead of patiently explaining politically. It's when you use threats, intimidation, suspensions, and expulsions to impose blind political obedience and subservience. It's when personal prestige and loyalty to an individual or a clique take precedence over political and organizational principles. It's when you issue commands from above, in the name of this or that body, as if being in a certain position within the organization automatically grants you authority. In short, Zinoviavism is when you deal with political differences by resorting to organizational methods. As such, it's diametrically opposed to genuine Bolshevism. It's the very opposite of how Lenin and Trotsky built the Comintern in the first place. There are plenty of examples of Zinoviavism in the history of our movement. Stalin is a classic example, of course, although he operated at an extreme level in which he actually controlled the state and opponents were not merely undermined or bullied or removed from their positions bureaucratically, but physically exterminated. So we generally reserve the term Stalinism to describe the broader phenomenon of degenerated or deformed workers' states, although in many instances it is entirely correct to refer to Stalinist organizational methods. A better example might be James P. Cannon of the American SWP. Despite having done some very positive things, Cannon was no theoretician, and when he got into trouble politically, he tended to default to organizational measures to solve political problems. He infamously used these kinds of methods against Ted Grant and the comrades of the original Workers International League during the so-called Unity Conference in Britain in 1938 in the run-up to the founding of the Fourth International. And in more modern times, we've seen these methods used by the likes of Jerry Healy and Peter Taff, who succeeded only in wrecking their respective organizations. A big part of the problem was the fact that the Comintern was formed by extremely raw and politically immature forces, a majority of which came out of the old reformist socialist and anarchist organizations. Most of them had sectarian, ultra-left tendencies and no real understanding of Marxism or class struggle tactics and strategy. They reflected a previous, outdated stage of the working class's political and organizational development. They operated largely in the realm of crude pragmatism and general abstractions and didn't know how to apply materialist dialectics to the tumultuous and contradictory events of the post-World War I epoch. They were certainly energetic and well-intentioned, but they simply weren't up to the task, and they were denied the luxury of time to learn from their mistakes. If the truth is to be told, at the time the Comintern was founded, there weren't any genuine Bolshevik organizations outside of Russia. 
The real secret, if you will, for the success of the October Revolution was not only that there was a revolutionary leadership up to the task of winning and holding power, but that it had been painstakingly built in advance, in large part through a series of extremely sharp debates over important questions of theory, strategy, and tactics. The Bolshevik party would not have succeeded in bringing the working class to power had it not been built before the revolution erupted. The history of the last 100 plus years shows that once a revolutionary situation breaks out, it's just too late to build a revolutionary leadership. Nonetheless, Lenin and Trotsky did their best to build such a leadership in short order and had to work with what they had available. They bent over backwards to win the best individuals and groupings from around the world to revolutionary Marxism and Bolshevism. Even within Russia, while there were many dedicated revolutionary cadre, there were very few genuinely well-rounded Marxists, people with a serious grasp of theory. Really speaking, although individuals like Bukharin are sometimes included on the shortlist, only Lenin and Trotsky truly qualify as serious Marxist theoreticians, in my opinion. Above all, Lenin and Trotsky had to combat what they called the infantile disorder of ultra-leftism. They engaged in this battle with political arguments and resolutions by patiently explaining with a view toward educating and raising the comrades' level. Their method was to use the errors of ultra-leftism to help people learn. They offered pointed but comradely and constructive criticism as opposed to insults, shaming, and commands from above. After all, the only real authority a political leadership can have is a moral and political authority. It can't be imposed artificially or bureaucratically from above. It must be earned over time and be continuously re-earned. A genuine revolutionary leader does not and cannot demand authority based on positions or titles, such as being a, quote, leading comrade, a CC member, or anything like that. Comrades must be inspired politically to make sacrifices and to carry out democratic decisions collectively, even if they were on the losing side of a vote. But a proper discussion and the opportunity to politically convince an opponent takes time. Unfortunately, despite the experience of the Russian Bolsheviks, there just wasn't enough time to transmit and learn the necessary lessons before the post-World War I revolutionary wave subsided. If the leadership has a low political level or low authority, or if it loses its patience, it may look for shortcuts and resort to organizational measures instead of political arguments. That's a slippery slope to disaster. Lenin once warned Zinoviev and Bukharin, if you want obedience, you will get obedient fools. And the biggest fools are those who think they can build something healthy and lasting based on these methods. So who was Zinoviev? Grigory Zinoviev was born Hirsch Apfelbaum to Jewish dairy farmers on September 23, 1883, in what is now Ukraine. He was the same age as another Bolshevik leader, Lev Kamenev, four years younger than Trotsky, five years younger than Stalin, and 13 years younger than Lenin. He joined the Russian Social Democratic Labor Party, or the RSDLP, in 1901 at the age of 18 and was with the Bolsheviks from the time of the split with the Mensheviks in 1903. He was first elected to the Central Committee of the RSDLP in 1907 at the age of 24. He spent the first years of World War I in exile in Switzerland and returned with Lenin to Russia in the famous sealed train that traveled across Germany. Zinoviev was Lenin's closest disciple in the decade leading up to 1917 and a member of the Central Committee abroad, which Trotsky referred to as the spiritual center of the party. Lenin credited Zinoviev as co-author of his pamphlet Socialism and War, written in the summer of 1915, a classic exposition of the Bolshevik position on imperialist war. 
Zinoviev also wrote a series of articles on the history of war and the class struggle, published in a collection of writings with Lenin in 1916. Lenin often collaborated with others to help develop them, although the key ideas came from him. This was also the case with Stalin's short book on the national question. Lenin clearly saw Zinoviev as a promising young comrade. As his chief lieutenant, he played an important role in organizing the Zimmerwald Conference, which brought Zinoviev into contact with many anti-war lefts from around the world. This positioned him to play a leading role in the Comintern as a key organizer of the first few congresses. He drafted many of the Comintern's documents and even gave the opening speech at the Second Congress. He was, by all accounts, a marvelous agitational speaker. Trotsky called him an orator of extraordinary power. As he put it, his high tenor voice would surprise you at first, but afterward win you with its unique music. Zinoviev was a born agitator. He knew how to infect himself with the mood of the masses, excite himself with their emotions, and find for their thoughts and feelings a somewhat tedious, perhaps, but very gripping expression. However, Trotsky also pointed out that Zinoviev's character was weak, which was evident time and again in so many of his ideas, decisions, and actions. His tendency to vacillate and to fall back on organizational maneuvers can be traced to the need to compensate for his chief weakness, an incomplete and imbalanced political grasp of Marxism, combined with a deep-seated lack of confidence in the working class. Most infamously, Zinoviev and Kamenev voted against the October 1917 insurrection when this was discussed on the Central Committee of the Party. It was their right to vote against, of course, but they not only lost the vote, they proceeded to publish an article against the uprising in the bourgeois press. Lenin wanted them expelled from the party for this serious breach of discipline, not for disagreeing politically, but because they literally put the lives of their comrades and the fate of the revolution itself at risk through their organizational and political disloyalty. However, events were moving so quickly that this incident was soon buried in the general turmoil of those days. Then, just days after the victorious seizure of power, Zinoviev and Kamenev again showed their true character. Under pressure from the right-wing railroad unions and petty bourgeois parties, Zinoviev was among those who agreed it would be best to remove Lenin and Trotsky from the government in order to form a conciliatory coalition with the Mensheviks and SRs, parties that were socialist in name, but life and death opponents of the socialist revolution in practice. Again on the losing end of a crucial vote, Zinoviev and Kamenev resigned from the Central Committee. This time Lenin called them deserters for siding with the petty bourgeois and in the final analysis, bourgeois enemies of the revolution. But Lenin always tried to help people reach their potential and he knew Zinoviev had certain talents. Despite his flaws and indecision, he was still an experienced Bolshevik and these were in short supply. As a result, Zinoviev was readmitted to the party, re-elected to the Central Committee at the 7th Party Congress in March 1918, and put in charge of the work in Petrograd. He was also one of the seven original members of the Politburo. At the 1923 and 1924 Party Congresses, he delivered the Central Committee reports, speeches usually given by Lenin, who was gravely ill at the time. Armed with ideas by Lenin, Zinoviev was an unrivaled speaker and defender of Bolshevism. For example, he was masterful in his 1920 debate at Halle in Germany against the Menshevik leader Martov, where he argued that the Independent Social Democratic Party of Germany should affiliate to the Communist Party of Germany and the Third International. After this, Zinoviev became known as the Man of Halle, and by some accounts gained even more influence than Lenin or Trotsky among the German workers. As Trotsky explained, at meetings of the party he was able to conquer, convince, bewitch, whenever he came with a prepared political idea. 
Armed with a prepared strategic formula containing the very essence of a question, Zinoviev would adroitly and astutely supplement it with fresh exclamations, protests, demands, just now caught up by him on the street, in the factory, or the barrack. In those moments, he was an ideal mechanism of transmission between Lenin and the masses, sometimes between the masses and Lenin. However, as we have seen, Zinoviev was a compromiser at heart and lost his nerve under the pressure of great events. As another example, during the defense of Petrograd against the white general Yudenich in 1918, Zinoviev again imploded under the pressure. As Trotsky explained in my life, In Petrograd I found the leaders in a state of utmost demoralization. Everything was slipping. The troops were rolling back and breaking up into separate units. The commanding officers looked to the communists, the communists to Zinoviev, and Zinoviev was the very center of utter confusion. Sverdlov said to me, Zinoviev is panic itself and Sverdlov knew men. In favorable periods, when, in Lenin's phrase, there was nothing to fear, Zinoviev climbed easily to the seventh heaven. But when things took a bad turn, he usually stretched himself out on a sofa, literally, not metaphorically, and sighed. Since 1917, I had many opportunities to convince myself that Zinoviev had no intermediate moods. It was either the seventh heaven or the sofa. This time, I found him on the sofa. And of course, Zinoviev's vacillation and indecision during the critical weeks of the 1923 German Revolution was another tragic turning point in history that highlights, in an entirely negative sense, the role of the individual in history. Years later, when offering brief sketches of the leading Bolsheviks in his testament, Lenin highlighted the October incident described above and noted that Zinoviev and Kamenev's conduct was not accidental. These were all inconvenient truths which Trotsky reminded everyone of in his 1924 work, Lessons of October, in which he sought to correct the dangerous course of the Soviet Union and the Comintern. Not surprisingly, this transformed him into Zinoviev's mortal enemy. It's also not surprising that Trotsky had nothing but scorn for Zinoviev's vacillation, grandstanding, and lack of decisive conviction. The key is this, Zinoviev was not a theoretician, but he thought of himself as one and was regarded as one by many others. A fundamentally low political level, combined with ambition, jealousy, and excellent oratorial skills, is a dangerous combination, and something Trotsky couldn't abide. As he explained, being merely an agitator and neither a theoretician nor a revolutionary strategist, Zinoviev, when he was not restrained by an external discipline, easily slid down the path of demagogy. That is, he showed an inclination to sacrifice enduring interests to the success of the moment. The Mensheviks derisively called Zinoviev Lenin's shadow, and Viktor Serge pointed to Zinoviev as Lenin's greatest mistake. More than anything, this reflects Serge's petty bourgeois demoralization at the time he wrote those lines. However, there is an element of truth to it. As Lenin himself put it, Zinoviev copies my faults. But to Lenin's great credit, he always tried to bring out the best in everyone, and always tried to find the best person for a particular task. He was patient but firm, and favored giving people second or even third chances. Nine times out of ten, this gave him positive results. Someone once said, if you want to know what a man is like, take a good look at how he treats his inferiors, not his equals. The difference between how Lenin treated his so-called inferiors and the way Zinoviev or Stalin treated people is highly instructive. There's no doubt that Zinoviev was highly intelligent, dedicated to the world revolution, and a hard worker, but this is not sufficient. It's the method of Lenin we must learn, and Zinoviev never did that despite the long years of working with him side by side. 
Above all, he never grasped dialectics, which explains his constant zigzags and 180-degree somersaults. Left to his own devices, without the political guidance of Lenin, Zinoviev was quickly exposed as out of his depth. To make up for it, he resorted to empty bravado, bullying, and commandism. As we've seen, this is precisely what happened to James Cannon after Trotsky's death and to Peter Taff well before he expelled Ted Grant and Alan Woods from the CWI. Now, the impossibly difficult conditions the early Soviet state and Comintern had to contend with have been detailed elsewhere, for example, in Trotsky's masterpiece, The Revolution Betrayed. Although the Russian working class took power, the world revolution failed to spread, and the young Soviet republic's isolation and backwardness ultimately led to the crystallization of the counter-revolutionary Stalinist bureaucracy. In the final analysis, conditions determine consciousness, and by the time of Lenin's death, the Russian party, and by extension the Comintern, were not what they had once been. Jealous of Trotsky and seeing him as the chief obstacle to his becoming Lenin's heir, Zinoviev formed an alliance known as the First Troika with Kamenev and Stalin. In preparation for the struggle, Zinoviev built up a base of support in Petrograd, which by then had been renamed Leningrad, and in the Comintern. Although he would have been horrified had he realized it at the time, Zinoviev was objectively reflecting the pressures of the petty bourgeoisie and through them, the big bourgeoisie and imperialism. It was a struggle to the death as the forces of revolution and counter-revolution fought over the future of the Soviet state and the Comintern. It was in this context that Zinoviev invented the term Trotskyism, cynically counterposing it to Leninism. It is clear that as early as 1922, Zinoviev saw Trotsky as a rival to be undermined and swept aside through gossip and underhanded maneuvers. But it was at the 13th Party Congress in May 1924, just months after Lenin's death, that Zinoviev openly denounced so-called Trotskyism. He slandered and lied about Trotsky and his role in the revolution and civil war and demanded that he be expelled from the party. Of course, Stalin was involved in this campaign from behind the scenes. Neither Stalin nor Zinoviev had any problem making dramatic flip-flops if it served their short-term aims. Never mind that on the one-year anniversary of the October Revolution, Stalin had written the following, All practical work in connection with the organization of the uprising was done under the immediate direction of Comrade Trotsky, the president of the Petrograd Soviet. It can be stated with certainty that the party is indebted primarily and principally to Comrade Trotsky for the rapid going over of the garrison to the side of the Soviet and the efficient manner in which the work of the Military Revolutionary Committee was organized. After Lenin's death, Trotsky's role in the October Uprising, the Civil War, and the creation of the Red Army had to be smeared and eventually turned into its opposite. However, since plenty of people still remembered the truth about all of this, it wasn't so easy. So Zinoviev also helped create the disgusting cult of Lenin. He spoke demagogically at Lenin's funeral. And against Nadezhda Krupskaya's wishes, Lenin's wife, Zinoviev approved of having Lenin embalmed and put on public display. As for Trotsky, he was unable to attend the funeral because when he died he was away in the Caucasus, recovering from an illness, and Stalin lied to him about the date of the funeral. Naturally, his non-attendance was used to paint him as an enemy of Lenin and of the revolution. This is the kind of small circle poison that was rampant at the very top of the world's first workers' state. Lenin's death helped tip the balance of forces in favor of the bureaucratic counter-revolution. Although we surely knew better, Zinoviev went along with the reactionary anti-Marxist theory of socialism in one country for purely factional reasons. His method of debate included the use of selective quotations, conflations, amalgams, crude straw man arguments, and outright lies. 
Zinoviev himself admitted as much when he and Kamenev zigzagged yet again and joined Trotsky to form the united left opposition against Stalin in 1926. Quote, the trick was to string together old disagreements between Trotsky and Lenin with new issues. End quote. The Stalinists, sectarians, and bourgeois enemies of Bolshevism later perfected these methods, which are entirely alien to the traditions of Marx, Engels, Lenin, and Trotsky. In short, Zinoviev's petty, spiteful attempt to further his own prestige and to take out Trotsky as a rival helped open the floodgates for the rise of Stalinism and eventually, many decades later, the restoration of capitalism. That's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. Next time, we'll take a look at Zinoviev's fall and Stalin's rise, the Fifth Congress of the Comintern, which is where things really took a nosedive, and go through some of the repercussions all of this had throughout the international. Big thanks, as always, to Laura Brown, our audiovisual producer, whose hard work behind the scenes makes these episodes possible. If you liked what you heard today, please share, subscribe, and give us a five-star rating, which will help other listeners find us. Or consider making a donation to the International Marxist Tendency or subscribing to Socialist Revolution magazine. Better yet, why not join the IMT and bring these ideas to your family, friends, and co-workers? You can learn more about the IMT and about getting involved at socialistrevolution.org. Stay healthy and safe and keep fighting the good fight, the fight for socialism in our lifetime. Oh, oh, oh.